Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name is George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 47, The Byzantine Golden Age and the Bookworm Emperor. The year is 867 CE, and there is a new dynasty sitting on the throne of the emperor. Basil was born a slave, arrived in Constantinople poor and destitute, and managed to climb all the way up to the very top of the ladder. It was quite the accomplishment, one that he couldn't have achieved if it weren't for his good looks and sharp wits. He was uneducated, had no royal blood, and had never served in the military. Yet here he was, wearing the purple robes, sitting on the throne of the Roman Empire. He was the beginning of a new dynasty, and the empire was just entering its new golden age. It's quite normal to wonder, how could such a murderous, uneducated, devious schemer bring the empire back from the edge of ruin and steer it into a golden age? Well, he didn't do it alone. In fact, the great Byzantine machine was already on course for success. A lot of the policies were put into place by Theodora and Michael III. Basil mostly continued those policies. Basil mostly continued those great policies. Basil didn't just want the most powerful position in the empire, he wanted to kick ass at it. And that meant learning everything there was to learn about being an emperor. It did help having the Abbasid Caliphate go through their own golden age of learning and advancement. Even though the Romans and Arabs still fought each other, there was no full-scale war that took all of their resources. Furthermore, the Bulgarians to the north were busy fighting the Franks. That conflict alone saved the Romans a lot of trouble on their northern front. That isn't to say the borders were totally peaceful. They were just quieter. Another factor leading the Romans into a Byzantine Golden Age was the global temperature. It wasn't warm by today's standards, but the globe was warming up. The past 200 years had been the coldest in over a thousand years, and finally the earth was warm again. This meant higher crop yields, more food, and a healthier population, which led to trade and wealth and innovation. So there are many factors contributing to the Byzantine Golden Age. But enough about facts. Let's get back to the narrative. Basil I is the most powerful man in the empire. And his first task was to get educated on the matter. If you recall, the great emperor Justinian was most famous for his law codes, that and the plague. 
And his law codes were so important because the empire had been using centuries-old law codes with piles of legal precedents stacked on top of each other. After 400 years, these precedents required multiple lawyers just to interpret a single law. Justinian was forced to rewrite the laws to make governing the empire more efficient. Well, it had been well over 300 years since Justinian's law, and the empire had gone under so many changes, it was time for a new law code. Basil worked tirelessly to translate and adjust the old law codes to make the empire function as smoothly and uncorrupted as possible. His laws were written into 60 books and were called the Basilica, and began with ecclesiastical law, sources of law, procedure, private law, administrative law, and criminal law. Unlike Justinian's code, which continued to have an impact in the West as a continuation of Roman law, the Basilica's influence was limited to the Eastern Empire. This had such a lasting impact that it continued into modern Greece. Following the Greek War of Independence against the Ottoman Empire in 1821, the Basilica was adopted until the introduction of the present Civil Code of Greece. Ironically, this codification of laws seems to have begun under the direction of Uncle Bardas, who was murdered by Basil. Another important note is that Justinian law codes were written in Latin. So just the translation alone was a vast improvement for the Byzantine people. It wasn't just Basil's new law code that made him similar to Justinian the Great. He also commissioned the construction of many new cathedrals within the empire. He personally oversaw the construction of the Nea Ecclesia. This was the biggest church built in Constantinople since the Hagia Sophia in the early 6th century. The church was designed to be similar to the Hagia Sophia and had five domes. One major dome in the center dedicated to Christ and the four lesser domes in the corners were dedicated to the holy saints. The church no longer exists, so there are no pictures to look at, but there is a description of the church given by Basil's grandson, Constantine. This church, like a bride adorned with pearls and gold, with gleaming silver, with a variety of many-hued marble, with compositions of mosaic tiles and clothing of silken stuff. Basil offered to Christ the immortal bridegroom. Its roof, consisting of five domes, gleams with gold and is resplendent with beautiful images with stars, while on the outside it is adorned with brass that resembles gold. The walls on either side are beautified with costly marbles of many hues, while the sanctuary is enriched with gold and silver, precious stones and pearls. The barrier that separates the sanctuary from the nave, including the columns that pertain to it and the lintel that is above them, the seats that are within and the steps that are in front of them, and the holy tables themselves, 
All of these are of silver suffused with gold, of precious stones and costly pearls. As for the pavement, it appears to be covered in silken stuffs of Sidonian workmanship. To such an extent has it been adorned all over with marble slabs of different colors enclosed by tessellated bands of varied aspect, all accurately joined together and abounding in elegance. Although this church survived the entire reign of the Byzantine Empire, it was turned into a gunpowder storage facility by the Ottomans. In 1490, after the Turkic conquest, a bolt of lightning struck the church, igniting the gunpowder. The explosion was catastrophic, leaving only a pile of rubble. And since the Turks were Muslim, there was no need in rebuilding the church. And this is not the last time we'll hear a story similar to this. The Turks loved storing gunpowder in famous temples, including the Parthenon in Athens. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses for Basil. There was the problem with the Paulicians in the northern Euphrates. If you remember from the last episode, they were a strange sect of Christianity that believed there were two gods and two worlds. The bad god created earth and all the physical bodies that lived on it. And the good god created heaven and all of earth's souls. The good god is God, and the bad god is the devil. The Paulicians may have been a crazy sect of Christianity, but they were not pushovers. After the persecution of Theodora, which resulted in the death of nearly 100,000 Paulicians, they rose up. They were tired of Byzantine armies riding in and killing everyone and seizing their lands. It's no wonder why they chose to rebel against their Christian overlords and join forces with the Arabs. It's kind of ironic how the small sects of Christianity always found safe haven in Muslim countries. But maybe that's just because the Orthodox Church was trying to control the state religion while Arabs just taxed other religions. It's possible that the Abbasids persecute crazy sects of Muslims and we just don't know about it. The Paulicians lived at the top of the Euphrates. The Euphrates is one of the great rivers of the Fertile Crescent. Today it starts in Turkey and Armenia and flows through Syria, Iraq and Kuwait. Back then it was on the border of the Roman Empire and the edge of Armenia and the Abbasid Caliphate. When the Paulicians rebelled, they founded their own cities called Amara and Tefriki. And then they joined forces with the Caliphate and began raiding into Roman territory. So they went from annoying insects to killer bees rapidly. In 869 CE, the Paulicians launched their most aggressive raid yet, making it as far into the empire as Nicaea. The Paulician and Arab coalition captured many priests and peasants and turned them into slaves. So Basil sent an emissary to negotiate the release of their valuable prisoners. 
mostly the priests. He didn't really care for the peasants. While Basil's emissary was negotiating for the release of their prisoners, he was also taking mental notes. When he came back to the emperor, he had a lot to report. And so, Basil led an army against the Paulicians. And his first attempt was not that good. And actually, he barely escaped with his own life. Either his spies didn't report the true strength of the Paulicians, or the emperor disregarded the facts. Either way, Basil was lucky to be alive. Now Basil did what any great emperor would do in his situation. He hired someone to do the job for him. And so Basil appointed a man named Christopher to be the general who exterminated the Paulicians from the face of the earth. Christopher took his army and followed the Paulicians across Anatolia. They made it as far as the Armeniacon without the Paulicians detecting them. And assuming everything was fine, the Paulician army camped in a narrow pass and lit their fires and ate their food. It was the end of a long day, and everyone just wanted to catch some sleep. Little did they know, thousands of Byzantine soldiers were right behind them. The Romans attacked at dawn, sending in 600 men, while the rest of the scouting army banged on their shields and sounded their trumpets and shouted in the air. The Roman strategy was to frighten the Paulicians into running through the valley where the bulk of the Byzantine forces waited for them. And the plan worked perfectly. The Paulicians ran for their lives, and just when they thought they made it away, they came face to face with the army. It was a slaughter. The Romans chased them down, cutting their backs one by one, and for 50 kilometers they hacked and slashed at the Paulicians until they were wiped out to the last man. Even the leader of the Paulician sect was captured and beheaded. A letter carrier was given the task of carrying the severed head all the way back to Constantinople to be given directly to Basil I. And after slaughtering the Paulician army, they marched on their home and burned it to the ground. Any surviving Paulician was either deported or enslaved. And just like that, the Paulician wars were won. Basil finished what Theodora and Michael III could not. Another similarity Basil had with Justinian the Great was his determination to reclaim the land in the West. But he knew he couldn't do it alone. So he forged an alliance with a power figure in the West. Charlemagne was long dead, but there was the great-grandson of Charlemagne, Louis II of Italy. It seemed Louis was having trouble with Arabs in Sicily. The Arabs just kept invading and raiding, and there was nothing Louis could do. The Arabs were based in Sicily and had a fleet that could land them in any city along the Adriatic. Louis was a ground army, a pretty strong one too, but that wasn't helping him at the moment. He needed ships. Well, it turns out Basil had ships. 
there was something beneficial to both Louis and Basil to teaming up and working together. So Basil and Louis came together and formed an alliance. The Eastern Empire and the Western Empire were working together. The band was back together again. Did this mean they were really good friends? No, but it did mean they had shared interests. They both wanted to get rid of the Emirate of Sicily. And if for some reason you don't know what an emirate is, think of a mini-caliphate or Islamic kingdom. I just wanted to point out a fun fact. It's the late 9th century, and we have the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire working together. But neither of them were Latin. The Roman Empire was built on Latin supremacy. But where are they now? The emperor in the West, if you can call him an emperor, was German. And the emperor in the East was Greek. So where did all the Latins go? Basil had exactly what Louis needed, a fleet. So he sent 139 across the Adriatic to help clear the seas of Saracen raiders. If you look at the ocean between Italy and Greece that is the Adriatic Sea, both Louis II and Basil I had their borders along the Adriatic. So securing these waters helped both parties. But the real threat came from Bari in southern Italy, where the non-Arab Islamists were based and launched all of their raids. I say non-Arab because they were most likely African and Berber. If the Byzantines wanted the problem to go away for good, they were going to have to invade southern Italy as well as Sicily. Now something of interest here, both Basil and Louis claimed Sicily and southern Italy as their own land. So this alliance was pretty much doomed from the beginning. If you remember from the beginning of season 1, Sicily was home to many Greek colonies, specifically Syracuse. There was also the Spartan colony of Tarentum, in the southern part of Italy. Then the Roman Empire conquered the Greek world, and since the Greeks inherited the Roman Empire, there was long-standing claim to southern Italy and the island of Sicily. I can't imagine Louis the Frank willingly giving over southern Italy and Sicily to the Greeks. The sources are confusing, but what we know is the campaign started out on good terms. And the city of Bari in southern Italy was conquered. The capital of the emirate fell to the Christian alliance. And afterwards they continued south into Sicily. Here the fighting continued, but didn't go as planned. Even though the emir, or leader, was captured, the fighting continued. And during one of the sieges, Basil sent a very interesting command to his fleet. Now, Basil was famous for his construction projects, and he ordered half of his fleet to diverge away from the assault and instead ferry large building stones from Sicily to Constantinople. Now, we don't know if this alone led, led to the defeat in Sicily, but it sure as hell didn't help. The Franks and Greeks ultimately abandoned Sicily to the Islamic Emirate, but they held on to southern Italy, so it wasn't a total loss. There was a marriage alliance between Louis II and Basil I's children, 
Louis's daughter was to marry Basil's firstborn son, Constantine. This alliance would be the beginning of reuniting the Eastern and Western empires. Now Constantine was the son from Basil's first marriage and was also his favorite child. In 879 CE, young Constantine died, and his father Basil fell into a deep depression. Basil had two other sons, his younger son Alexander and his elder son Leo. And Basil raised his youngest son Alexander to the role of co-emperor, and raised him to take over the empire. Now you might be asking yourself, why not raise his second oldest son to the position of co-emperor? Well, there are several reasons for that. The major reason was Basil didn't like his son Leo. He was a nerdy bookworm who liked to bury his head in his books. Basil looked at this as weakness and often berated his son for his nerdy tendencies. There was no room for a weak emperor. But the other reason, and quite possibly the main reason was Leo was born suspiciously early. If we go back just a little, you'll remember Michael III had Basil divorce his first wife to remarry Michael's mistress. Well, Constantine was from the original marriage, and Leo was born so early after marrying Basil's mistress that he suspected Leo was the true son of Emperor Michael III. When Eudokia, Basil's wife, and Leo's mother died, things turned very ugly for young Leo. The suspicion led to paranoia. Now maybe Basil brought it upon himself by berating his son for being a nerd. Maybe it was because he publicly beat him. But eventually, Basil suspected his son of plotting against him, and he had Leo locked up on suspicion of treason. He even threatened his son with blinding, but the populace found out and rioting took place in the streets. Eventually, Basil was forced to release his son from prison, but that didn't mean he trusted him. He still wanted his son Alexander to succeed him as emperor. In 886 CE, Basil left the capital to go on a hunting trip. He was out in the forest hunting deer and came pretty close to killing one of the deer when the antler snagged his belt. He was ripped from his horse and dragged through the forest. Basil tried to get loose but couldn't break free. The deer is said to have dragged Basil over 16 kilometers through the forest. This almost killed Basil. And if it wasn't for an attendant with him, he would have been dragged much further. The young attendant caught up to Basil and cut the belt, freeing the emperor from the deer. Basil was in rough shape. He was injured all over his body and physically exhausted. When he returned to the capital, Basil had the attendant who freed him arrested. He charged him with attempting to assassinate him and had the young man executed. This seems like a poor way of rewarding someone who just saved your life, but we don't know what happened. Maybe the attendant was conspiring with a deer to kill the emperor. 
If he was conspiring with a deer, then he made a big mistake by freeing the emperor. Either way, shortly after the attendant was executed, Basil caught a fever, and a few days later he died. And so Basil's reign came to an end. You'd think that Alexander would have been raised to the seat of emperor, especially because he was already the co-emperor, but that is not what happened. Instead, Leo was raised to the position of emperor, and the first thing Leo did was have the remains of Michael III brought to the capital and given a proper imperial burial. If there wasn't any doubt that Michael III was the true father of Leo, this helped cement it into truth. Whether or not Leo's true father was Michael or Basil, he sure acted like it was Michael. Maybe he was just angry with Basil for all the beatings. Either way, there was a new emperor on the throne. And he was a smart emperor, one who continued to carry the Byzantine Empire into a new golden age. On August 29th, 886 CE, Leo was crowned the emperor. He is known to history as Leo VI, or Leo the Wise. And one of the policies he carried out was the continuation of Basil's legal code. Leo was a bookworm after all, and the new law code had yet to be finished. Now Leo was already married, but not to his true love. When he was 15 years old, living under the roof of the emperor, Leo had a girlfriend. And it was getting pretty serious. They were definitely sleeping together. And because this was a Christian empire, the nobles started to notice this and accused Leo of being a degenerate. This embarrassed Basil, so he sent Leo's girlfriend away and had her marry some low-life nobleman, and then forced Leo to marry another woman. Leo had a crazy and turbulent upbringing living with Basil, but now he was the emperor the most powerful man in the empire. He was only 20 years old and was already married with children. And what does a 20-year-old do as the most powerful man in the empire, I hear you asking? Well, he went to the second most powerful man and fired him. That's right, Leo fired the patriarch of Constantinople. And in his place, he appointed his younger brother, Stephen. So now there is a 20-year-old emperor and a 19-year-old patriarch, and their brothers. This almost sounds like the beginning of a tyrannical reign, but it wasn't that big of a deal. In fact, no one really protested, except the patriarch, of course. You see, the patriarch kind of had it coming. He was starting to act a lot like the Pope in Rome, thinking he was the equal with the emperor and could rule in his place. There was no room for a patriarch that assumed powers like that. In fact, it was very dangerous keeping a patriarch like that in power. Better to get rid of him immediately and replace him with someone who will tend to church duties. But Leo was wise, as his name suggested. His early days as a bookworm helped him prepare for his early days as an emperor. And on the days of great Christian celebration, he would personally give the sermon in the Hagia Sophia. He was a highly educated man who could deliver church sermons that he wrote himself, and personally finished Basil's law code. 
But there was trouble in paradise. His wife was not his true love. His true love was sent away by his father and forced to marry some lowlife. His current wife, Theophanes, was very loyal to her husband. For her, this wasn't just a duty to the empire, but a duty to her god and her husband. She stayed with him while he was in prison and tried everything to earn her husband's affection, but he never really warmed up to her. He still loved his first love. For the first decade of their reign together, she tried everything to get his attention, but his coldness only pushed her away, and eventually she devoted her life to God and the church, and very soon the relationship became a sexless marriage. You know what the worst part of a sexless marriage is? No heir to rule the empire. In 893 CE, Theophano retired from palace life and moved into a monastery. Not the prison-like monastery where they sent Irene, but a volunteer monastery. Now you might think this would be a lot better for her, but she still died only a few years after joining the monastery. So who knows, maybe all monasteries are brutal. Leo was never happier to see his wife leave him, and almost immediately after she left, he summoned his old girlfriend and true love, Zoe. This is a strange coincidence, because as soon as his loveless wife left him, the husband of his true love mysteriously died. Did Leo kill Zoe's husband? Maybe. But there are people who speculate Leo also killed his father on the hunting trip. What matters most is Leo's true love came back to him and joined him in the imperial palace and was crowned as Augustus, or co-emperor of the empire. Leo reigned for many years, and while he was in office, he never brought the empire into major wars with his neighbors. The Abbasid Caliphate was going through its own golden age, but that didn't mean there weren't small incursions or Arab raiders. But there was no all-or-nothing war. Likewise, the Bulgars to the north were growing a little hostile, but Leo refrained from gathering giant armies and marching them north. This lack of military posturing from Leo may have been a weakness, because the Bulgars launched a surprise attack against the Romans after a trade dispute. Leo's policy of non-super-aggression meant that his army was evenly dispersed around the empire and couldn't defend against the Bulgar invasion. Unable to raise an army fast enough or strong enough to repel the Bulgars, he resorted to an old Byzantine tactic. Leo reached out to the tribes living directly north of Bulgaria and formed an alliance with them. This new alliance created a hot spot on the northern border of Bulgaria, forcing the Khan to redirect his army away from the Roman border and march them to the other side of the empire to fight the new threat. This took the pressure off the Romans without forcing them to move troops away from other borders. It's kind of a brilliant tactic when you think about it. And the funny thing is, this method was used by the Bulgars to get rid of this new threat to their north. The Romans acted as though the threat was gone, but as soon as the Bulgars defeated their enemies to the north, they redirected their troops back at the Romans, and the incursions continued. Whether due to his lack of military expertise, or just lack of resources, 
Leo failed to meet the Bulgars on the border, and the incursion turned into an invasion. Slowly but surely, the border between Bulgaria and the Roman Empire moved closer and closer to Constantinople. Ultimately, the Romans were forced to sign a new peace treaty that ceded a lot of territory to the Bulgarians, and even resulted with the free and independent Serbian kingdom. The end result was the Roman Empire shrunk, while the Bulgarian Empire grew substantially. This kind of proves the importance of having a strong military commander on guard at all times. And maybe this is what Basil I predicted when he saw his son was more into books than he was military command. Perhaps it would have been best to have two emperors, one in charge of the military and the other in charge of domestic affairs. But alas, we will never know. In 897 CE, Emperor Leo's wife Theophanes died in the monastery. And according to Christian custom, that meant he was free to remarry. And so in 898 CE, he married his true love Zoe, and together they had two children. It is very reasonable to suggest that 897 and 898 were the happiest years of Emperor Leo's life. He was finally married to his true love, and she was having his babies. But the worst year of his life was probably 899 CE, because that is when his beloved wife Zoe fell ill and eventually died, leaving Leo alone on the throne with three daughters and no male heir. He was only 33 years old. In the year 900 CE, Leo held a bride show and had all of the eligible women brought to his palace where he chose his new bride-to-be. He selected a young, beautiful woman to be his third wife, and after a very controversial marriage, the new couple became pregnant. This was good news for the emperor and the empire in general, but for some reason, the church was horrified. On April 23, 901, Leo's wife gave birth to a baby boy. Finally, there was an heir to the throne. But this was the Middle Ages, and having a baby was the most dangerous part of a woman's life. And while giving birth to her baby boy, the queen bled to death. And to make it even worse, the baby fell ill and died the very next day. Leo's weakened state at home was a mirror of the weakened state of the empire. It seems the loss against the Bulgars had emboldened their enemies as the Emirate in Sicily conquered the rest of the island, forcing the last of the Byzantines off the island forever. Sicily had been under Byzantine control for almost 400 years, and now it was gone. This must have been a very depressing time for Leo. His empire was shrinking on all sides. His true love was dead, and now he wasn't able to produce an heir. It almost seemed like the Byzantine Golden Age was coming to an end. However bad Leo was feeling, it was about to get worse. In 904 CE, a Greek defector who converted to Islam 
sailed up the Aegean with a fleet of Arab ships and sacked the city of Thessalonica. This was the second biggest city in the empire. Not only was this the center of the Greek world, it was also very close to Constantinople itself. For days the enemies plundered the city, stripping it of its wealth and carrying off 30,000 slaves. If Leo wasn't depressed before, he sure was now. And it must have made those serving in his court question his ability to rule the empire, putting a target on his head and the throne. At this point, Leo had two choices. Sink further into depression and give up, letting everything around him crumble until eventually someone in his court assassinated him. Or he could summon up all the anger that plagued him and focus it into a beam of righteous anger and revenge. Leo chose the second. In 905 CE, Leo sent his general on a hit-and-run mission to the city of Tarsus. Tarsus was located in the corner of the Mediterranean Sea, where the coast of Syria met the corner of Turkey. They swooped in with a fleet and surrounded the city, laying siege to the capital of the Arab Emirate. They came in with ships loaded with Greek fire and surrounded the city walls with every soldier they could muster. And the end result of hitting the major city with speed and violence was the capture of the emir and tens of thousands of slaves. And when he had all these prisoners Leo organized a prisoner exchange and freed the citizens from Thessalonica who were captured earlier. It wasn't just that he restored the prestige and people to the second biggest city in the empire that made him special. It's also the fact that he destroyed the biggest city in the emirate that was giving him so much grief. Leo proved to all his enemies watching that he was not a pushover, and if you mess with the empire... He will track you down and make you pay twice over. Leo's problems weren't over. He still needed to produce an heir, and he had a lot of ground to gain on the frontiers of his empire. But he was no longer on a losing streak. He managed to turn his fortunes around and strengthen the empire internally and externally. And with a little more hard work, he continued to take the empire into its golden age. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.